I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Well, scientists from the National Institutes of Health are getting royalty payments from pharmaceutical companies and other private companies. Uh, It's a practice that's happened for decades. Uh, No accusations of any wrongdoing other than are we doing this the wrong way. Now there's a new push to open the book so we can see who's getting paid for what and where those conflicts of interest might be. Really pleased to have joining us on the program today, Adam Angievsky, uh, who is the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com, a nonprofit that investigates government spending at every level. Uh, and uh, we are a group that believes in transparency and shining light is the, uh, the best disinfectant. And uh, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Well, it's great to be on the program, Boyd. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, wonderful. Let's dive into this uh, because this is one of those areas where, again, as long as we've got transparency, we can work it through. But kind of give us how this came to your attention uh, and what is it actually that you're looking at? Well, we had noticed that back all the way back in 2005, so 17 years ago, that's the last time there was transparency on the Institute of on the National Institutes of Health, NIH, on their royalty database. Here's what it is. It is payments from third parties, think pharmaceutical companies, back into the agency at NIH and at 1,700 scientists. And so the payments enrich the agency and its scientists. Every single one of those payments could be a conflict of interest. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act request for the database. This was eight months ago. NIH refused to even acknowledge it. They never responded. So we sued them with Judicial Watch in federal court. And the case moved quickly. We won, and on judicially mandated production, NIH admitted to holding 3,000 pages. Nobody knew the size and scope of this practice. Turns out we're able to estimate now it's $350 million that flowed back into the agency from, think, Big Pharma Mm. over the course of the last 10 years. And its leaders were getting the royalties as well, which calls into question the whole program of giving royalties. Because, Boyd, as you know, every year NIH doles out $32 billion in grants. That's taxpayer money to the entire industry. Now we know that every 10 years, hundreds of millions of dollars is flowing back the other way, enriching the scientists, its leadership, and NIH itself. Uh, So many thoughts. So many thoughts. (laughs) Uh, So so as we look at this, uh, and again, I think for... For the average listener, for most of us sitting here, just that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't smell right. That doesn't taste right, uh, probably because it's not right. Uh, so how, how do we get to that kind of transparency where, where we can at least know, okay, this, this pharmaceutical company is giving royalties back to this person who works at the National Institute of Health. Uh, they maybe have a little bit of an incentive to you know, push that particular procedure or that particular remedy for something. Uh, how do we actually get to that point? So the only way to get to that point, Boyd, it's an excellent question, is quite simply to be able to follow the money. So I can tell you on top line numbers 
that $350 million over 10 years was the gross amount of the royalty payments. But here's the thing. And I, and I can also tell you that there's 1,700 scientists' names in the database. But what I can't tell you is how much each individual scientist, including Fauci and the former head of NIH, Francis Collins, received. I can count the number of royalty payments, but they blacked out, they redacted the amount of the payment. And furthermore, they blacked out and redacted the third-party payer. So if it's a pharmaceutical company, I cannot tell you the name. We don't know who paid $350 million worth of royalty payments. Wow. All right. Now, we, we know that this was the subject of a congressional hearing this month. Uh, did we learn anything from this, or was this more uh, not a hearing, uh, more just a speaking from uh, members of Congress sitting on the dais? Well, so 36 hours after our report launched at OpenTheBooks.com, it led to five minutes with the acting director, Lawrence Tabak, in the hot seat, five minutes of questioning about these royalty payments. And finally, at minute four, he confessed that every single one of those payments could have the appearance of a conflict of interest. Exactly what we're saying. So we've called on the National Institutes of Health to open the books to show us exactly who's paying how much to each of the scientists. It is the only fair way to debate this issue. Yeah, absolutely. So what are the what are the next steps? Uh, what what happens next in terms of actually getting the books open uh, so we can actually see what's going on, how the money's flowing? As you said, following the money usually gets us to the right space in terms of what is actually going on in terms of influence peddling or, uh, you know, the wealthy and the well-connected getting more wealthy and more well-connected through these kinds of processes. Exactly. So we're going back into court. Our lawyers are judicial watch and we're going back in to unredact all the redactions. And and that should be a knockdown drag out fight because NIH is certainly acting like they have a lot to hide in the in the congressional hearing. The acting director that Lawrence Tabak, he said that there's nothing to be concerned about because we have firewalls. (laughs) I mean, I'm not buying it. Three hundred and fifty million dollars over 10 years enriching the agency who has a vested interest in keeping hundreds of millions of dollars flowing. And, and they dole out $32 billion a year in grants. I want to see who's paying the royalties. We already have captured who's getting the grants. I want to put the two databases together. That's right. Yeah, that is the ultimate. And if, if we can connect those dots, uh, the magic of transparency will take place. And we can do it. Our auditors at OpenTheBooks.com, we are forensic auditors. We are data scientists. Let me tell you, even to get the top-line numbers, off of these horribly redacted production from the National Institutes of Health took our data scientists. If we didn't employ data scientists, I wouldn't even have this story for mm. you here today, Boyd. Wow. Wow. That is uh, that is just stunning. And again, this is one of those uh, we started the show today talking about trust in institutions of government. And this is one of those things that just undermines trust uh, where there just seems to be uh, this kind of collusion. Uh, and again, we don't know who did what. Uh, many of those should be, you know, could be absolutely straight up, right on. But we, we have to know. And in the absence of that, that you, trust continues to erode. Do you have time for an example? Please. Great. So back in 2005, as I mentioned, the Associated Press got the whole unredacted database so they could follow the money. And right off the top, they exposed a scandal. And it was Dr. Anthony Fauci in 2005. 
they discovered he received $45,000 worth of royalty payments for an experimental age drug, a drug that was funded with $36 million of U.S. taxpayer money. Fauci's the head of an institute at NIH, obviously very powerful, can direct funding. His name's on the patent. He's receiving royalties as the U.S. taxpayer funded this thing for $36 million. And even after, it was, uh, even after he was receiving royalties, taxpayer money continued to flow to continue to enhance the drug. So Fauci upfront admitted that it was a conflict of interest, and he said he would donate. Trust me, I'll donate the payments, the royalty payments to charity. That was the answer. Wow. That uh, that is stunning. And so where do we go from here? What should we be watching for uh, in the coming months? So we were able to forecast 350 million over a 10 year period because NIH has produced only 1200 pages out of the 3000 pages. We're getting 300 a month. And on that basis, we're able to forecast the largesse. Every single month, we get new production, 300 new pages, and we're going to be able to, to expose a new investigation on that production every month. So stay tuned. These things, we've put together some of these preliminary numbers on what we can figure out. It is absolutely stunning what's going on in this program, and it's all funded by your tax dollars at NIH. It's a federal agency. They're running this program. It's absolutely stunning. Wow. Adam Angievsky is the CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. This is an important conversation in transparency uh, and what happens in this. Uh, Adam, we'll have you back as this continues to emerge. But thanks for joining us today and giving, this, giving us the update. Thank you, Boyd. All right. Uh, that is a man. That is a head scratcher for me. Uh, that is one of those things that undermines trust. If you have someone who is over an agency directing billions of dollars in research to pharmaceutical companies and then is getting royalties back uh, on those same drugs and medications. That's a trust problem. we got to get it right. All right, we'll step aside for top of the hour news. Much more to come. Hour number two of Inside Sources coming up on KSL News Radio. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, the headlines continue to suggest that you soon might be feeling a little more of a squeeze in your pocketbook, even more than we do now. Uh, a lot of talking heads say that the United States may be headed for a recession or even the stagflation. So what is that behind the headline? And what does it really mean for you and for the economy? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again. Of course, there's a, a lot of conversations going on in terms of the state of the economy and what is going on. And uh, we're really thrilled to have joining us for the first time on the program, Dr. Thomas Hainig, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And of course, before that, he was the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Uh, Dr. Hainig, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, so as, uh, as we look at where the U.S. economy is, uh, give it one. Just give us a sense of where we are, and then let's project forward into inflation, stagflation, and help us separate that out. Well, where we are right now is we are at a very early uh, stage of trying to address an inflationary problem that has built up over the past year. So we had a very 
um, strong economy coming into 2022. Uh, it actually uh, remained fairly strong in the first quarter, although GDP uh, was stagnant. Uh, consumer demand was very strong. And the reason that our GDP was negative was we imported an awful lot of goods compared to what we exported. So that actually just reduced the numbers. So on balance, the economy was strong. However, inflation was 8.5%. It remains at 8.3%. And so the inflationary um, uh, factors in the as it factored into the economy uh, began to actually reduce our public's real income. Um, uh, inflation is 8%. Wage increases are five, five and a half percent. So you have a real reduction in real income. And as we go forward from here, um, as the Fed has announced, it's going to fight inflation now, first and foremost. Uh, that means interest rates will be rising. It also will be shrinking its balance sheet. Uh, and this will very much slow the economy going forward. And the most important part of that is we're just the Federal Reserve is just getting started at that. They've raised interest rates by 75 basis points. They've just started reducing their balance sheet uh, and from uh, from nine trillion dollars uh, to uh, 45 billion dollars less than nine trillion dollars. So they're only getting started in reducing their balance sheet. So we have a lot of uh, further tightening ahead of us, and that will slow the economy even more. Yeah. And so as you look at all of that, I want to hit kind of both sides of the equation. And um, the the president said today from Japan that uh, that a recession was not inevitable. Uh, and so let's talk about maybe some of the things that are going right uh, in the economy. What are the things that are going right that give you some confidence of, in terms of how we will weather this storm? Well, the things that are going right at the moment is that people have not um, stopped spending. Uh, they haven't become so afraid that they're unwilling to spend. Uh, consumer demand remains reasonably strong. While uh, some investment has slowed, investment is still taking place. Uh, so what we have right now is a slowing economy, but not a, not a collapsing economy. And that's a very positive thing yeah. in this environment. So if we, can, if we can continue to slow the economy and bring inflation down without uh, a recession. That would be the best of all outcomes. But as I said at the beginning, we're only starting the tightening cycle. So we have a lot more to face uh, in the in the next several months that will determine whether or not we have a recession or not. And I think there's still a very high risk of a recession. Yeah. And so as you look at the uh, the, the headwinds on that, what are the what are the things uh, that do you, you mentioned that we're just at the beginning of this process? I think that's really important for us to keep in perspective. What are some of the other things on the horizon that are worrisome to you uh, in terms of how we navigate this? Well, think about it for a moment. If they continue to raise rates, as they say they're going to, towards a, a rate of, say, let's say two and a half. 2% to 2.5% by the end of July. If you think about that for a moment, on interest rates, that's about a 8 to 10-fold increase mm. in interest rates. That's a significant increase if they follow through on that uh, in interest rates. So that's going, to, that's going to slow the economy. Your hope is that it slows the economy and doesn't stop the economy. On the other side of that, they're allowing the balance sheet to run off uh, from 
at, at a rate of about starting in June, 100, uh, about a $95 billion a month. That is a very significant reduction in liquidity in the market uh, for the economy, and that would further slow the economy. And if those things were to catch uh, at once and people begin to see the effects of that as um, as too much, then they would stop spending and we could very quickly take a dive into a recession. So the, the hope is that this is that this pace, even though it is significant, is not so fast that it causes uh, the consumer businesses, small businesses, large businesses alike to lose confidence and therefore begin to stop their spending altogether. Yeah. That's the biggest risk yeah. is we have a, a dramatic slowdown in the economy all at once. And are there other things that the Fed ought to be looking at from a policy standpoint? To Everyone always talks about that soft landing. Is the soft landing even possible, or are we just going to have a little bit of bounce? Well, a soft landing would be, um, would be a very unusual event. It would mm-hmm. be very good, but very unusual. Most times when you have inflation that's been increasing at this rate, uh, whether it's partially due to supply disruptions, uh, it's also very much due to very strong demand uh, uh, incentives in the economy. If you if you have eight percent inflation as a result of that, to get it down to back down towards two percent usually involves a, either a mild recession or more than a mild recession. But very seldom does it allow you to avoid recession altogether. Possible, you never want to rule it out, but difficult and generally unlikely. And what is the thing that we're not thinking about or that we're not talking about when it comes to the economy that we should be watching for in the months ahead? Well, the, 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 the best thing is if you could get your supply disruptions addressed, that would help on one side of it. But it's a little bit late in terms of the demand side, given the amount of money that has been put into the economy. So what we have to watch is the pace at which we raise interest rates uh, and the pace with which we withdraw the stimulus that has been put in place on the, on the Fed's balance sheet. What you would hope for is that uh, once you get to two and a quarter percent, you can pause long enough to let the lag effects of this tightening t- catch up uh, and therefore allow for a smoother uh, slowing in the, in the future months, that is, the, say, October, November, December of this year, so that you can avoid a serious recession. That's got to be the focus of the Fed and of the government uh, as it uh, plans for its next budget, is how do I do this in a way that doesn't trigger a dramatic slowdown in the economy? That is the challenge they face. Uh, They have not had experience with this in recent times, so it's going to be a um, a new experience for us all. And how well they manage that will be what we're all going to be watching and looking forward to the future. Now, the other part of this is if things start to slow and they reverse themselves too quickly, Mm. they will reignite inflation. So they have to avoid that at the same time. So it is a very uh, razor thin knife that they're trying to uh, walk at the moment. Yeah. And then finally, I just want to ask you real quickly, just in terms of you you mentioned that uh, budget and government spending moving forward. Uh, obviously, that has an impact on the inflation and where we are now. Uh, what should lawmakers be looking at as they 
especially as they get to the end of the fiscal year and are, are doing those projections uh, in September, uh, what's the real key things we should be watching in that space when it comes to government spending and how that will impact both inflation and the economy? Well, government spending, like monetary policy itself, has to moderate. Uh, you, you, you know, when you went from pre-pandemic in 2019 to 2020, they increased the spending about 50 percent. And then they did it again in 2021. Mm-hmm. Now we're in 2022 and it'll be a little bit lower. But how they decide on what, how much to spend, uh, given the entitlements that have to be funded, and given the fact that we're uh, providing support to the to the Ukraine, we have to support our own uh, uh, future needs that are not uh, necessarily entitlements alone, highway infrastructure. How they decide to spend that money will influence how much spending goes forward and influence the inflationary pressures that the economy faces in the next year to year and a half. And so you have that that they have to be the government has to be very careful about. And then you have monetary policy that they also have to be very careful about. And they have to make sure they mesh together so that they don't exactly accelerate the downside, nor do they accelerate the inflationary pressures. Uh, That is one huge challenge for both the government and the Federal Reserve to coordinate uh, in a way that uh, manages the economy and allows for a softer landing than they would otherwise have if they don't coordinate those actions. Yeah, living on a razor's edge, to be short. Dr. Thomas Hennig, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and of course he was uh, the president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Uh, Dr. Hennig, thank you so much for joining us today. Great insight. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Really important stuff there uh, from uh, former uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City uh, chief executive officer and so many things to think about in terms of how we navigate this. It is tricky. Uh, There are some good things. There's some positive things in terms of the economy, and there's a lot to be worried about and concerned about how Congress navigates it, how uh, monetary policy navigates all of that uh, is going to determine what we're all living with. Uh, and how we're able to stretch things out in our own personal bank accounts as well as what we do as a country. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.